Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, a huge week on the economic front. I'll have that story. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London, where we're looking ahead to the Dubai Air Show and why airlines have a fear of missing out when it comes to plane orders. I'm Doug Krisner. We preview the meeting of Presidents Biden and Xi on the sidelines of the APEC Summit in San Francisco. I'm Kaylee Lines in Washington, where Congress is racing to avert a government shutdown with just days until funding runs out. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. The business news you need to wrap up your week in just one 15-minute podcast. Available on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby. We begin today's program with a focus on the U.S. economy and specifically inflation. Investors and the Fed will be scrutinizing two big readings on inflation. On Tuesday, we get the Consumer Price Index for October. On Wednesday, the Producer Price Index. And for more, we're pleased to welcome Anna Wong, Chief U.S. Economist with Bloomberg Economics, and Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. Well, let's start with Anna and that read on consumer inflation. Anna, what are you expecting to see this week? We are expecting the headline CPI to be very soft because um, seasonally adjusted gasoline prices actually came down uh, over 5% in October. So um, a monthly reading of uh, a monthly increase of 0.1% on the headline CPI. And we are also expecting uh, core CPI to come in, you know, um, in the 025 uh, range. So it could easily round to either 0.3 um, or 0.2, but nonetheless, it is um, a reading that won't uh, sound of alarm bells among the Fed of- officials. Well, uh, and Michael, this sounds pretty good, not just uh, won't set off alarm bells. Well, uh, we are still uh, almost six weeks away from the next Fed meeting, and there will be another CPI report and a PCE inflation report before we get to that. So they'll focus on the more recent data. But yes, this would, uh, if we get the scenario that uh, Anna is talking about, and that's pretty much the consensus, it it will tell the Fed that they are still on the right track, and it will suggest to them that they are in restrictive enough territory because they're they're pushing down on inflation and so uh, it won't change anyone's call for to to a higher rate or something like that well month over month anna is 0.1 percent what is it year over year october to october um the year over year for um core inflation is looking to be um below 3.6 percent and that's uh that means that um at the end of this year, the fourth quarter year over year would be likely be undershooting the Fed's uh, own forecast of 3.7%. So this, as, as Mike McKee was saying, th- uh, this is the reason why the Fed does not feel the urgency to uh, do that extra, realize that extra 25 basis point hike they had in the September dot plot. It's just because inflation is now on track to undershoot their forecast. 
But their their long-term forecast, 2%, we're still a, a ways away from there. Is there a dot plot for when we could reach that? Will we ever reach that, Mike? That's the question I asked Jay Powell at the, at the last uh, Fed news conference. Uh, the Fed in September said uh, on the dot plot that there was an extra 25 basis points uh, priced in uh, in their forecast before the end of the year. But as uh, Powell answered me, those forecasts de- uh, decay over time, and they change as the data comes in. Market adjusts every day, minute by minute, uh, the Fed once every three months. So he suggested that perhaps nobody would be putting that into, or not nobody, but almost nobody would be putting that into a dot plot today. Uh, the question is, do we leave out the rate increase, or do we leave out the time frame? If you leave out the idea that it had to be by the end of the year, that's probably more likely, but it doesn't mean that they're done. And if inflation should start to go back up again, uh, that rate increase is still on the table, and then they could add more. So you have to look at every meeting, December and then January, and going forward as a potential rate increase until they tell us differently. There's always that doubt, always. Uh, Anna, let's switch now to the producer price index, because you brought up a a big factor there, and that is a decline in energy prices. And how will that impact uh, your forecast there? Yeah, I think the importance of the PPI is what it what it implies for the Fed's preferred inflation metric, which is the PCE deflator. So the things in the PPI report that's very important for the Fed's preferred metric is airfares and also healthcare prices. So healthcare prices account for you know um, over 10% of the PCE basket, and we have seen over the last couple of years that there's still significant labor shortages in healthcare. Uh, services sector, um, and also that a lot of the, um, you know, um, um, wage increase uh, is still coming from the healthcare sector. So it could be that um, through 2024, the the remaining, the lingering. Um, Inflation impulse could be coming from sectors like healthcare wages, where you know we saw this year that there were a lot of labor strikes in um, um, you know in UAW and uh, Hollywood screenwriters. But you know the the healthcare workers still are the ones who who have been burned, who have been overworking during the pandemic, and their wage increase have not been uh, catching up to inflation. So I think a risk is that next year we'll see more of the strikes coming from the healthcare sector, and eventually those would be passed on to PCE prices. So I would be paying attention to airfares and uh, healthcare prices in the PPI. Well, uh, and Mike, more on that, how are airfares looking? I mean, we've seen uh, demand still strong, especially for international travel, but it looks a, a little weakness domestically. Uh, we are still seeing some declines in air prices uh, overall. The question on a month-over-month basis is how they get accounted for, because as anybody who's tried to buy an airline ticket knows, uh, the prices are quite volatile. They go up and down. But uh, the this is the time of year when prices tend to decline because everybody's gone back to school, it's fall, the weather's not great, so the tourists kind of uh, stop. Uh, we'll see airfares probably go up again when we get uh, closer. Well, we're, we're getting pretty close to Thanksgiving. And then uh, the, the Christmas, uh, New Year's period, uh, airfares should go up again. But uh, the government does seasonally adjust that, so we'll have to see how it all uh, plays out. One of the interesting areas in 
uh, all of these uh, price indexes is used cars, and they have just fallen off a cliff lately. So that could be uh, something that puts downward pressure on these inflation measures. Now, we, we talked about Thanksgiving, which is coming a lot faster than I think anyone realizes. Christmas, just a few weeks ahead, and, and that leads us to retail sales, because we get a, a read on retail sales for October this week. And a lot of the biggies, uh, Walmart, Target, Amazon, all had early Black Friday sales during the month of October. Uh, Anna, what are we expecting to see for retail sales? And, and and Mike, I'll ask you what it tells us about the consumer. Yeah, I think the early Black Friday sales, what, what it does is that it could potentially make for a retail reading that's stronger uh, than what the consensus is penciling in. So we have been saying that consumption should be slowing down and retail um, sales should be entering into negative territory in in the fall. However, if it's true that there's a lot of early Black Friday sales and people took advantage of that, those sales, it could mean that they won't be, there will be stronger seasonally adjusted sales, but that doesn't mean that that's uh, permanent because what that means is that it will just pull forward the Christmas spending so there will be weaker November and December. Do you think so, Mike? Do you think? <laughs> I mean, it seems like people just spend, spend, spend but you know maybe they are pulling back. Well, the the question is when they spend and uh, how it will compare, obviously, to um, what we saw in the last couple of years. Everything's been very distorted by the pandemic. Uh, it's been hard to know exactly what's happening with consumer spending because of the pandemic bonuses you got from the government and the fact that when everybody went back to work, they got raises. So uh, it isn't quite clear what's going to happen. And uh, and all of that sort of distorted the timing of spending as well. But now the question is, do we see a, uh, a rebound because people still have money in the bank and they still uh, they're, they're making more money, they spend their paychecks, and they, they're they feeling good enough to go out and, and buy stuff, or do they pull back somewhat? Now, last year, um, we saw a rise in retail sales for October that then was uh, eliminated in November, and <laughs> we went way, way down. Uh, November and December were weak. Do we see that same pattern again? Or uh, do, do we get back to what we were seeing before the pandemic? And the one thing I wonder about is the going into the pandemic, the psychology for a lot of buyers was wait till the last minute and prices will go down. Well, in an inflationary environment like this, maybe that's what people are going to start doing again. And then we wait and see what happens in November, December. All right. Well, our thanks to Anna Wong, Chief U.S. Economist with Bloomberg Economics. Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. Thank you both for being here and coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, what to look for at this week's Dubai Air Show. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, we preview one of the year's most crucial summits and a meeting of U.S. and Chinese leaders. But first, it's shaping up to be among the hottest years ever for large aircraft deals. The buying spree expected to continue at the Dubai Air Show in the days ahead. This comes as production at both Airbus and Boeing are having trouble meeting demand because of a shortage of parts. And that's intensifying the race among airlines for the last remaining production slots available this decade. And for more, we head to London and Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Caroline Hepker. Tom, the Dubai Air Show is an important barometer for the health of the aviation industry, measured by the appetite for deals. The industry's last big gathering was in Paris in June. It resulted in about 1,300 aircraft sales, and the organiser of the Dubai Air Show, uh, they are hoping to see something similar. The event caters to some of the world's largest wide-body operators. The local champion Emirates has already teased that it wants to order more. Anna Edwards and I have been speaking to to our senior aviation reporter Siddharth Philip about what to expect from this major event. But first, to get a flavour of the industry, Airbus CEO Guillaume Fourie says that the company expects higher output in 2024 thanks to surging demand. He's been speaking to Bloomberg's Remain Bostic and Guy Johnson after Airbus's third quarter results. The single-aisle business, so the uh short and, and mid-range activity will continue to uh, dominate a number of planes. Uh, we've seen the activity on the single aisle recovering much faster after COVID than it was for uh, wide bodies, for long range. Uh, but we think long range will follow up, will also uh, recover first and probably even stronger moving forward. And when we look at the long-term perspectives for the, uh, for the market, we expect both single aisle and wide bodies uh, to significantly grow uh, to the extent that uh, we believe there will be around 40,000 planes uh, to be delivered in the next 20 years. Guillaume, you're ramping up, as you just confirmed to me, the, the 350 program. You're going to go to 10 a month, 2026. That's not a big push higher. You're basically going from 8 to 9 to 10 by 2026. Picking up on Romain's point, is that... You talk. You, you signalling caution that you actually think the the big push we're seeing for long haul demand at the moment is not sustainable. Could you take that program higher by that point if demand remains as robust as it is now? Well, actually, we see the demand growing. We see a recovery in the demand, and uh, we were at a low point of rate four on the A350 during COVID. So we went from four. And, and we, we keep growing and we are now targeting 10. Uh, it's uh, slightly or it's very comparable to what we had pre-COVID. Uh, and we had said that the traffic itself would be recovering um, back to pre-COVID levels uh, between 23 to 25, 2023 to 2025. Um, so I think we are consistent uh, with the evaluation, the assessment we made of the recovery yeah. of the market going just out of COVID. Do we have the potential for more? Yes. The A350 has the potential to go up to rate 13 
based on the existing production system. And we will continue to monitor the demand, the recovery of the demand, with a big replacement cycle for white bodies that is just starting, uh, and also some uh, expectations for growth. So the market has the potential to go higher, and we have the potential to continue to serve that market by further ramping up. But I'd like to just confirm that rate 10 on the A350 is already a very big number. So that was the Airbus CEO. High hopes then that airlines will continue expanding. But there are plenty of headwinds for the industry, including obviously the disruption in the Middle East, the war in Ukraine, high oil prices and wider economic uncertainty. So I asked our own Siddharth Philip, ahead of the Dubai Air Show, what he thinks the mood in the industry is going into the event. In terms of the mood for the industry, at the moment, the industry is sort of, they're struggling to get any aircraft. So everyone's sort of trying to order as many aircraft as they can, as they look to tap into growth and demand over the next coming years. Uh, Remember that during the pandemic, everything really slowed down. And so now airlines have sort of ramped up again, and they're trying to get as much demand, uh, trying to cater to as much demand as they can. And that involves buying new aircraft. Uh, yes, it does. It involves buying new aircraft. Sid, uh, hello, good to speak to you. So what are the orders that we're expecting to get in Dubai? So, yeah, we, we're, expecting to, uh, we're expecting Emirates, which is the local carrier of the, of, uh, the UAE, uh, of Dubai, is basically expected to make a massive splash. And Tim Clark has been saying that he's in the market for more wide-body jets. In June, he talked about how he might order as many as 100 to 150 aircraft. And he said he was looking at both Boeing and Airbus's largest models. So it's really a question of seeing how much Emirates actually does sort of manage to succeed in terms of trying to get those orders across the line. We're also going to see some action possibly from Riyadh Air. They're a brand new airline that Saudi Arabia is building from scratch. And that's run by the former Etihad CEO, Tony Douglas. And they've said that they're putting the final touches on what's going to be a sizable order involving narrow-body planes. And mm. we understand that Riyadh is likely to order the Boeing 737 MAX jet. And that's still not finalized, but and talks are ongoing, but we should be able to see how that plays out in the next couple of days. Okay, but with so many orders, what about the squeezed consumer? Are they pulling back on travel? What are airlines saying about demand? It seems to be a mixed picture at the moment. Some airlines are talking about how demand is slowing in terms of growth. So demand hasn't actually fallen down, but the growth percentage is slowing. Especially in the US, we've seen some carriers talking about slowing demand growth. But And also, I mean, there's been some some experienced industry watchers, including Stephen Udvar-Hazi, who's the uh, chairman of Airlines, and he's been talking about how there's a concern that air, airlines are over-ordering aircraft, especially because of the fact that they've gone from virtually no traffic to 100% and now everyone's sort of binging on aircraft. Mm, that, was, that was a feature of the, of the airline industry decades ago, wasn't it, Sid? This sort of over-ordering in good times and then paying the price, sending all the planes to the desert in the bad times. How are the big plane makers then coping with this surge in demand? Are there, are there still supply issues or are they able to, to deliver? There are still supply issues. I mean, we heard from Airbus and Airbus was talking about how the supply chain continues to be constrained and everyone's been trying to ramp up production ever since the lows of COVID. 
and they haven't yet been able to. That's partly because they sort of cut back, especially smaller suppliers in the supply chain, cut back on staffing, they cut back on tooling, they cut back on facilities. And so bringing all of that back has been much harder than they anticipated. We've seen Airbus talking about how they want to go to 75 aircraft a month by 2026 on the A321 wide uh, narrow bodies. And they've talked about how they want to go to 10 a month on the A350 wide body. And so, but at the moment, they're still trying to ramp up. I mean, Boeing's had its own issues with suppliers. It's currently trying to rework issues with its 737 MAX jets, which uh, because of an issue with a Spirit Aerosystems in terms of production. And so everyone's sort of trying to bring back production, but so far it is pretty slow going. So that was our senior aviation reporter, Siddharth Phillips, speaking to me and to Bloomberg's Anna Edwards. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London. You can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6am in London. That's 1am on Wall Street. Tom. Thank you, Caroline. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we preview a big scheduled meeting with President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. On the sidelines of this week's Asia-Pacific Economic Summit in San Francisco, a crucial meeting between the leaders of the U.S. and China taking place. And for more... Let's check in with Bloomberg Daybreak Asia anchor, Doug Krisner. Tom, the last meeting of Presidents Biden and Xi was one year ago at the G20 summit in Bali. Back then, the goal was to improve relations, but those talks were derailed when a suspected Chinese spy balloon flew over the U.S. Well, now both sides have reason to reset. Biden is seeking stability as he gears up for a presidential election next year, and Xi wants to attract more foreign investment to help reinvigorate China's slowing economy. For some help previewing this meeting, I'm joined by Bloomberg's Jill Deeses, our China economy and government editor. She joins us uh, from our studios in Hong Kong. What do we know about the preparations for this face-to-face? What type of groundwork has been laid? Hi, Doug. Yeah, well, I think that at this point, it really feels like we've been preparing for this meeting since she and Biden last met in Bali a year ago. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, the the Chinese spy balloon incident uh, earlier this year certainly seemed to derail uh, some of the preparation for this. But what we've seen the U.S. in particular do over the past several months is send very various high-level delegations to China trying to lay the groundwork for this meeting. We saw Secretary of State Antony Blinken go 
go to China. We saw the U.S. Secretary of Commerce, uh, Gina Raimondo, go to China. We saw Janet Yellen go to China, the, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, and all of this prep to um, try to lay the groundwork for this eventual Xi-Biden meeting. So there's been a lot of these sort of high-level talks between people who either aren't Xi-Biden or, in some cases, Xi meeting with some of the, um, the, the top-level Biden officials to kind of pave the way for what I, I think both sides eventually hope is a very smooth meeting between their top leaders. You and I were talking a short while ago about a piece written by Bloomberg opinion columnist uh, Minchin Pei. And he was basically taking the view that this meeting holds very little in the way of upside for Biden. The China issue on the U.S. side has become so toxic, Minchin was saying any diplomatic outreach can be cast as appeasement and by extension, I'm thinking weakness. Now, she, on the other hand, has several reasons to maybe shift this downward spiral in relations with the U.S. Most obviously is this problem with investor confidence and the notion that China is uninvestable. Does Minchin have an accurate read on this dynamic, do you think? I do think he has a good point. I mean, look, I think that on the Biden side of things, it's definitely about politics here. Um, I mean, Biden has a year to gear up for the next presidential election. Certainly Democrats were winning in some key races uh, leading up to that. Um, they, they just had a slew of victories in various U.S. states that seemed um, you know, very promising for the Democratic Party. But I think that as Biden gears up to challenge uh, whoever his uh, you know, counterpart is going to be in the next presidential election, it looks most likely to be Trump, he's really got to project this idea that he's going to be very tough on China. And I think that the risk with any kind of meeting with Xi is that he comes across as a concessionary, depending on what exactly he says. Uh, that, though, I think really pales in comparison to some of the big problems that are facing President Xi Jinping and China. As you mentioned, I think foreign investments in particular is a pretty significant issue for China right now. Uh, the most recent uh, information on foreign direct investment into China, this came from the uh, country's balance of payments data that was just released recently, showed it uh, falling into the negative for the first time since records were kept since 1998. And we've seen all year long this big push by China, by Xi Jinping to try to lure foreign investment back. It's just really not taken hold. That's obviously due to a number of reasons, whether it's holdover from COVID-0 and all of the different restrictions that were placed on China over the last several years, whether it's regulatory uh, issues, whether it's uh, lack of clarity over how exactly the government is handling a lot of those regulatory issues. That's all really led to this level of lack of confidence and mistrust in China from foreign investors. And I think that she is really on a mission here to try to bring that back. Yeah, maybe we can also talk about the role that geopolitics plays in that level of unease. Taiwan, we know, gets a lot of attention when it comes to flashpoints. But increasingly, the Philippines has become a little bit of a, a concern. The U.S. recently renewing a warning that it would defend the Philippines in case of an armed attack under a 1951 treaty. That was after some uh, Chinese ships blocked and collided with two Filipino vessels. Do you think this is a, a hot topic right now for the relationship between Biden and Xi? Yes, I mean, I think that anything involving the South China Sea is certainly going to raise some particular issues. This issue with the Philippines has been kind of unfolding for many, many months now, leading to obviously some of these uh, these military confrontations there. I think that uh, Biden's willingness to kind of come out um, and the U.S.'s willingness to kind of come out publicly and, um, you know, issue that support for the Philippines does obviously signify that any kind of relationships, military, geopolitical relationships that the U.S. has in the South China, uh, the South China 
China Sea with uh, any of its allies there or any other nations there are really particularly, you know, important, strategically important for the U.S. to, you know, kind of protect. I'm, I'm, you know, uh, I don't know 100 percent whether this is going to come up at the Xi Biden meeting, but certainly you would think that it's uh, probably pretty top of mind for Biden to, uh, you know, kind of, you know, bring up the fact that this is a geopolitical flashpoint, as is Taiwan, as is many other issues here. Yeah, and I think the geopolitics extends to the Mideast a bit. We were told there was a story on the Bloomberg Terminal uh, highlighting the fact that President Biden had been briefed recently on what his advisors see as a Chinese plan to build a military facility in Oman. I mean, that seems to probably be very concerning, I would imagine, to the Biden administration. Yes, I think that's particularly concerning in light of how China has really stepped up its diplomatic involvement in that region. I mean, that, you know, sort of predates the Hamas attack uh, in Israel. We've saw earlier this year, obviously, she has really kind of played this role or tried to play this role as a peacemaker in the region. He uh, helped broker a tentative detente between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, he's also held joint naval drills, not just with Iran, but with Russia in the Gulf of Oman uh, just around that time. So I think that the Biden administration is likely keen to, you know, look to see what China is doing in the Middle East as the uh, conflict uh, between Israel and Hamas continues to unfold. Obviously, whatever role China plays with, uh, you know, brokering uh, any other relationships in that region, particularly with Iran, I think is going to be top of mind for the Biden administration. Well, you mentioned Russia there, and I'm curious about uh, the recent comments from Vladimir Putin telling a senior Chinese military official that Moscow and Beijing should expand their cooperation on military satellites and other prospective defense technologies. And I'm wondering how China's relationship with Russia complicates anything that she is attempting to get out of uh, the U.S., well, I think what we've seen, Doug, over the past couple of years in particular is certainly she has not been afraid to tout this diplomatic um, you know, alliance with, uh, with Russia in many ways. I mean, we just saw a few weeks ago at the Belt and Road Conference in Beijing, Putin attended, he was there with Xi, uh, they you know, talked side by side, certainly a lot. I mean, this is a particularly uh, important um, you know, relationship for Xi to uphold, and I think that as we were continuing to see fallout from, uh, you know, uh, Russia's invasion in Ukraine. That is, again, uh, I think, sort of a sticking point with the Biden administration. Does there need to be a lot more in the way of good communication happening between the U.S. and China where, where the military is concerned? Yes. I mean, I think that the, it's certainly true. Look, uh, Doug, over the past several years in particular, I don't think that you can discount also the um, relationship that COVID-0 has had with, um, you know, sort of fracturing a lot of these ties and communication between uh, the U.S. and China. I mean, when it's difficult to get into the country, difficult to get diplomats into the country, you sort of lose um, or you, you, those lines of communication or those lines of communication between those medium level, mid-level, uh, you know, diplomats in the U.S. and China get certainly very frayed. Jill, thank you so much for helping us uh, preview the meeting between Presidents Biden and Xi, Bloomberg's Jill Deesis, our China economy and government editor. I'm Doug Krisner. You can catch uh, Brian Curtis and myself weekdays here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 7 a.m. in Hong Kong, 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Our thanks to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia anchor Doug Krisner. And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, another possible government shutdown looming. We take you to Washington next for the latest. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg.
This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Could the federal government be hurtling toward a devastating shutdown? Could happen. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines. Yeah, Tom, we're running out of sand in the hourglass here. And yes, we've been here before. Remember when government funding almost ran out at the end of September? Well, we avoided that, though a continuing resolution that ultimately cost former Speaker Kevin McCarthy his job was the price. And that just kicked the can down the road, a road that ends on November 17th. So this coming week, it's going to be up to the new Speaker, Mike Johnson, and the rest of Congress to figure out how to extend funding again and avoid a government shutdown. So how do they get it done? Here with some insight, hopefully, is Megan Scully, who leads our congressional coverage here at Bloomberg. So, Megan, obviously, they're not going to be able to get all of the different appropriation bills done by the end of next week. There's no time. So it's going to have to be another CR. It will be another continuing resolution, yes, uh, if they can agree to one. The House is currently trying to figure out what exactly could get through that chamber. The new speaker, Speaker Mike Johnson, is finding himself in the same difficult position that his predecessor, Kevin McCarthy, was in just about uh, two months ago. And he's trying to get consensus within the Republican Party in the House. But whatever they do decide on still has to pass muster with the Senate, which is controlled by Democrats. So there's going to be a lot of maneuvering in the week ahead. Absolutely. And of course, one of the big sticking points between Republicans and Democrats are the big policy differences is people who want greater fiscal restraint versus maybe not so much. Right. Can something clean get through? Are we going to have to see spending cuts involved? There's discussion about a clean CR, maybe one that lasts until January. There's also been sort of this new made up uh, concept of a laddered CR. Yeah, what is that? (laughs) Some government agencies would close earlier than others, and the dates could be December and January or January and February, sort of a rolling shutdown that would decrease the at least the initial impact of a shutdown. You know, maybe the Defense Department stays open for a couple of extra weeks, but it doesn't solve the problem of we need to fund the government until the fiscal year ends on September 30th. So basically, they are trying to negotiate exactly what to do, whether to take this laddered approach that is perhaps clean or another clean spending bill that is is very short and just buys the House some time to, to figure out what to do next. Because remember, this is sort of the first time this new speaker mm-hmm. is involved in these high stakes Washington negotiations. Well, and it's not just a question of Senate Democrats. It feels like there's also a, a good deal of daylight between Republicans in the Senate and Republicans in the House. Absolutely. Especially over sort of extra issues, um, things that aren't necessarily directly tied to the government uh, shutdown, but are extraneous to that. And that is, of course, the emergency spending mm. on Ukraine, on Israel, on Taiwan, and along the border. Well, on the subject of the border funding, talk to us about how that is fitting into the equation here, because obviously that's something Republicans are pushing really heavily for. And it seems like that's something the White House is is willing to give, right, at least in terms of like monetary giving. Yes, the devil is certainly in the details. Immigration is an issue that has long dogged 
uh, lawmakers in Washington and, and the White House. The migrant crisis right now that is affecting not just communities along the border, but but cities like New York and Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, really blue areas, areas that Demo- Democratic strongholds are being affected by this migrant crisis, which is making Democrats perhaps more willing to deal on, on border and immigration policies. All right. Well, the clock is ticking, as it always seems to be. Megan Scully, the leader of Bloomberg's congressional coverage, thank you so much. And Tom, You better watch that clock. Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On weekdays 1 to 3 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning, 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on the markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.